We're gonna do that again. We're gonna do that again. <laughs> Which thing are we doing again? I restarted the recording. Oh. Sir. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, we fucked around for a little bit. We did. I didn't want to waste. We fucked around and a half of recording. That would have happened there. Yeah, you just chopped it off. I could have, but that would have required me to do more things at the end that I don't want to do. True. True. I am nothing if not willing to be exceptionally lazy. Insurmountably lazy. Insurmountably lazy. Now, if things sound a little bit different, that's okay. We're trying a new mic out, as well as a new software to record. Yes. Uh, the Elgato Wave 3, as well as the Elgato, what is it, what is it fucking called? Wavelink, instead of voice meter. We had a little bit, we had, we had some problems that you may have noticed that my mic for the last couple of episodes was a bit echoey. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we believe that to be a hardware problem, but in the event that this is worse, <laughs> we're sorry. I don't care. But we'll probably, you can, you come can up with a solution in the, in the future. Uh, yeah, maybe. I assume at some point, if we keep doing this, which I hope we do. I mean, speak for yourself. I mean, we've already paid the uh, the the Podbean fee of up until November, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That would be rather wasteful of us to simply not use it. But I'm nothing if not willing to be exceptionally wasteful, both in my personal and professional life. What about your unprofessional, impersonal life? Mm, mm, mm. My unlife. Your unlife. Why are you touching me? Stop touching me. What are you doing? Very good. Uh, to the podcast audience, I do not consent to that. Do you ever? No. Well, this is episode 16 of the Dungeon Bros podcast. I am I'm Connor. And I am Sam. We are not brothers. Nor are we in a dungeon. No. Sadly, not yet. We're working on it. We, you know, that's a lie. We're not. We're, we're in our 20s, and we live, we're, we're two men. We are. We are not in a in a homosexual relationship, and Correct. thus are considered friends. Yes. And male friends that live together tend to hold to have their homes be somewhat dungeon-like. A little bit. I feel like we're above average. I think we have a very homely home. A very homely home. Mm-hmm. It's 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 it's. Our female friends have often commented on how nice our mm-hmm. home actually is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do things like mm-hmm. have art. We do have art. Most of it D and D themed. Yes. Like Some this bit other. This lovely this lovely diagram of a D twenty behind us on the live stream. Which, by the way, whenever we record the podcast, you can catch it live on the TikTok. Usually, sometime in the week prior to the episode posting on the YouTube's and podcast services around the globe: Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, toaster ovens, um, the occasional fridge. As well as as little kitty electronic things that might have podcasts. If you hear the jingle jangles, she's trying to play with our feet. Indeed. As she is oft known to do. Oft known to do. Yes. Now, this, this podcast is going to be a little bit different than previous podcasts. Yes. Uh, we recently did uh, about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour long interview with the role-playing degenerates that you can find on TikTok. Uh, Cisco and Steven joined us. Sadly, Chris. Chris? Chris. Chris. Sadly, Chris was not able to join us, but uh, we ended up recording on Memorial Day. Um, and that'll be coming up as a full extra podcast, a little bonus thing 
to all of the podcasting feeds on, uh, what is it, June 15th, Wednesday, June 15th. So uh, an interstitial, as we are a bi-weekly podcast for mm-hmm. the time being. A uh, little bonus. And uh, once we get through the news, before we get into the meat of today's topic, which is the unearthed arcana, the arcana that was unearthed about giants. Mm-hmm. We didn't, no one wrote this that we know of. It was simply... It was dug up. Dug up from by... The, and archaeologists. The annals of the online. Yes, the archaeologists of Wizards of the Coast. The archaeologist, the architect that is Wizards of the Coast. Wizards Link. of the Coast. Indeed. They're not coast wizards. No. The wizards of some form of coastline. I would assume the Sword Coast. But could be the Astral Sea coast. Could be. Does the Astral Sea have a coast? I'm sure. Whoa, that is an interesting thing. I don't know. That I mean, coast implies an ocean of some kind. Is there is or there an, sea. an extra dimensional sea? I mean, the entirety of the Astral Sea would be considered a sea. Right. So would its coasts simply be the boundaries between the Astral Sea and the various other planes of existence? I suppose it's possible. Hmm. 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 Could you have a beach day at the Astral Coast? Would you want to? What horrors might you see? I would totally play beach volleyball with some insectoid aliens. I'd fuck them up. Don't, don't fuck the insectoid aliens. That's not what I said. I didn't say that I... I heard what I, you said. I didn't say that I wouldn't. I'm just saying that that's not specifically what I said in that moment. But yes, we're going to spice up this podcast with a little teaser, a little teaser, a little teaser. of that interview. It'll be nice. It'll be dropping next week. Our friend, our good friend Andy, who does the intro music that you've heard at this point. Uh, if you're watching live, you didn't hear it. <laughs> we don't do that. But uh, he's done our intro music as well as our closing music, which is, in fact, the same music. He's a very good man. He is. He is. If he messes it up and it's bad, blame him. we'll fire him. We don't pay him, so we will fire him. Yes, exactly. A uh, couple, couple other things. We have an Instagram account now. We do. At, at Dungeon Bros YT, I believe. Or is it just Dungeon.Bros? It's Dungeon.Bros. Oh. We're up to 34 followers. Wow. Wow. We've got, we've got some pictures up of some crafty dudes that we're doing. A little behind the scenes of what goes on here between, uh, between takes of, of podcasts and TikToks. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, we are over eight, we're over 18,000 of you follow us on the TikToks. Uh, we also have a YouTube where this podcast goes live, as well as some YouTube videos in the near future, in maybe. The weeks. I feel like I've said that for the past like three or four podcasts in a row, but... We'll get there eventually. Life is hard. No come. Uh, at some point between the recording of this and the posting of this, we will be putting out our next homebrew pack yep. for free pay what you want on drive through rpg this one is sam's on some wonderful arcane drugs illicit substances we are going to be getting high as fuck in D now and have some benefits there you go and maybe some drawbacks i, I mean it's it that's kind of our vibe so far with our with our homebrew a little bit of good a little bit of bad yeah the bad is what makes D fun for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. That ones are fun to roll sometimes. Not not so not necessarily an attack, but a perception or insight checker. Often dandy. Oh my gosh. A, like a like a, a seven insight. That's just fun. Right? That is just that's just a good time for everyone. That's Except how, uh, the person rolling. 
<laughs> that one of the first parties I've ever I ever ran ended up beating up a homeless guy. Anyway, so we got some uh, some news articles. What? News articles. Oh, first up, first news item of the day, uh, Wizards of the Coast and D&D has delayed a couple of their products about a month. Big deal. Uh, not a lot of info on why we can presume shipping delays. Stop touching me. We could presume. Stop, stop touching me. We could presume shipping delays, production delays, paper. The whole world is. It's terrible to release new products. But uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel, which is going to be a collection of adventures varying from levels, I believe, three to fourteen. Varying from levels three to fourteen, uh, was originally planned on being released this month on June twenty-first. Is now going to be released on July. Is now Jesus Christ. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Ooh, it's been a day, guys. It's now going to be released on July 19th, as well as the D&D Beyond version. So presumably, they just want to coincide the release on D&D Beyond with the physical release. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't read too much into that. A month is not going to make a big difference in terms of writing content for the books. It will need to have long been finished for publication purposes. Uh, also, the campaign case, Terrain, uh, was delayed until August 16th. The Creatures campaign case, which is going to release on July 19th, and the Spelljammer Adventures in Space, which will release on August 16th, are unaffected. Now, in the world of video games, delays, I feel like, are often a good thing. Never really a bad thing. I feel that they are... They, Hypothetically, yes, they are a good thing. Unfortunately, I think everybody reacts to it being a bad thing. Like, I get it. Yeah, I mean, people want their people want their products, mm-hmm. and that's we all understand that. But at the end of the day, delays are rarely a bad thing for video games. But with literature, literature, books and such, books and such, it really only serves. To, it only makes sense that it's a literal printing press delay. Either many things are being printed now that the pandemic is slowing down, at least in the eyes of the public. Whether or not the virus itself is less prevalent is not our place to discuss. But, you know, that's a bit of a shame. I don't think this is going to make any sort of last-minute changes to the book that'll make it better. This is just kind of like, yeah, we can't get it out fast enough. Yeah, I mean, if you've been, uh, if you are a Kickstarter for Kingdoms and Warfare, uh, produced by MCDM Productions, uh, they have just been having the damnedest time for the last year and a half trying to get a book out. They had to, you know, switch, you know, uh, printers like two or three times because no one had paper, and then there were. Issues with the fucking boat getting caught in the canal, and then there were, and now there are issues with misprints, and so, uh, yeah. It do be this, like that. At this point, we're, it's just a waiting game on Radiant Citadels. Yep. When that book comes out, we'll probably get it, maybe. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll decide. Don't see why not. We'll decide. And if she's off the table. Somebody really wants us to review it, let us know. Yes, please do. Next up, Samuel. Paizo. Next up, Paizo announced Drift Crisis, Last Wall, Abomination Vaults, and Shadow at Sundown. Paizo announced these four supplements, three for Pathfinder, one for Starfinder, in late May. Drift Crisis is a Starfinder's new year-long meta event. 
including a new hardcover sourcebook, two three-part adventure paths, multiple adventures, and a jumbo double-sided flip mat. This new release will shake the foundation of how interstellar travel works in the Starfinder game and setting. The new sourcebook will include more than 100 player options, from class options to equipment, feats, and spells. It includes lore on how the loss of faster-than-light travel and the disappearance of a god affect the denizens of the galaxy. New adventure seeds in a GM toolbox with unique treasures and NP rich NPCs. Uh, the physical book itself, MSRPs, for $45.99 with the PDF at $9.99, and where the playmat, it's $22.99, and the digital edition is $15.99. Now, that is one thing that I do like about Paizo releases, that the digital versions cost less. They do. That is, that is very nice. Um, that's one thing that I've always kind of been annoyed with video games, is that the digital versions of them have often been as expensive as the physical releases, and are even less likely to go on sale for some companies. Mm -hmm. uh, Nintendo games are notorious for this. So it's nice to see digital things that are a bit cheaper than the physical releases. Also, this all just kind of seems a little, like some of it seems like a bit of the, oh, they're doing spell jammers, we need to do our, our space stuff. Yes. For Pathfinder. Uh, uh, that's, that's Starfinder, Star specifically. The, 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 there are three Pathfinder releases in addition. Abomination Vaults is a mega dungeon adventure taking characters from levels 1 to level 11. Uh, Lost Omens. Knights of Last Wall is an adventure setting where the players can join factions of knights in order to fight back against hordes of undeads. And Shadows at Sundown is a standalone adventure for 11th level characters focusing on the evil queen's ghost manifestation in the city of Corvosa. Uh, Abomination Vaults comes in at $54.99 for hardcover, Knights of Last Wall is $39.99, and Shadows of S at Sundown is $24.99 for softcover. Um, I, I would never buy an RPG book in softcover form, ever. That's a weird thing to do. I would, I'm, I'm not a softcover guy. You're not a softcover guy? I'm not soft. I will say, I will say in, in reading this article, as a D&D specific family in this household we are a dnd household it took me a hot second to figure out the the uh the terminology the jargon if you will that paizo uses for pathfinder versus um versus uh, uh dnds yeah they don't use adventure modules they use uh adventures if they don't use they don't use uh campaign they use adventure paths yeah that's all that's all fine it's all things we have to learn as as influencers. Yep. It, ju it does indeed just kind of feel like, oh, we got to do another Starfinder thing because D&D's doing... Why is she being... Why, why is the cat being a bitch know. like now? I don't know. It's always, it's always right when we sit down at this table. She used to just sit nicely, too. I know. Anyway. Yeah, Paizo's got some releases. I don't know. It's, it's fine. <laughs> Paizo makes good stuff. They do. They have a lot of good stuff. But uh, I, have, I have no touchstone for any of this. So, right on. And I'm not a, a sci-fi guy, as we are, we are well, well aware. aware. We're well aware of that. Third item. We talked, we talked on a previous podcast. I believe we had an entire podcast discussing the attempted hostile takeover of Hasbro by, by a capital investment group known as AltaFox. Uh, the Hasbro Board of Directors has issued a letter to all of their shareholders where, for the first time, they really seem to be commenting about AltaFox. Now, the bulk of it is simply going over the normal sort of uh, shareholder letter things of, 
This is, we're going through a shareholder uh, uh, election for new board of directors members. We want you to vote all on the proposed nominees for that we have put up. Uh, we basically being like, this is what we want you to do. Talking up the hiring choices that they've made already. Uh, talking about how over the last couple of months, you know, revenue hasn't been as great. Shareholder returns isn't has been hasn't been as much as the broader stock market, but they feel like they do have a lot of room for improvement once they get their shit sorted out. I would argue that it's probably most of other Hasbro stuff that isn't Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. That's that's just that's Connor. That's Connor's thoughts. That's not this article. Now. What, what I find absolutely fascinating is after they go through all the normal rigmarole shareholder letters talking about sales, numbers, revenue, blah, 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 they get to two sections where they talk about AltaFox. I'm just, I'm just going to read a quote here. Quote, AltaFox has again decided to change course on its campaign, narrowing its board nominations to Marcelo Fisher and removing Ronnie Hublu and Carolyn Johnson from its slate just days before the scheduled annual meeting vote. Shareholders should question the lack of focus in AltaFox's campaign and lack of clarity around its thesis, which it has changed each time an independent and or third party does not support AltaFox's position. This type of 11th hour flip-flop reflects a highly inconsistent and fundamental weak set of conclusions underlying its campaign. And uh, the, I don't know how, how you familiar you are, you are with corporate speak. Unfortunately, very. This, uh, this, is one of the, this is one of those letters where the contents of it, it's one of the few times that you will see a corporation like truly being like, this is the closest you'll see a corporation being like, fuck these guys, they're morons, <laughs> you know? Um, ultimately, I don't think it really affects us in any meaningful way. I just think it's fun to see the Hasbro board of directors sort of clapping back at Alta Fox a little bit, which it does seem that there have been various other assessments of the board of directors and Hasbro as a company and it does seem like AltaFox has kind of changed their methodology for how to better things. Mm. Uh, we do know that AltaFox as an organization is, um, they're, they're a capital investment firm that basically just likes to disrupt what companies are currently mm -hmm. doing and change their path. Uh, whether or not you think that is good or bad, we discussed on a previous podcast, I think it could be good seeing as Wizards of the Coast seemingly is propping up Hasbro as an entire entity, and if Wizards of the Coast were to be spun off, uh, then they would have their entire revenue for themselves, which would expand D&D quite a bit more. D&D is expanding at a very rapid it's rate. Very rapidly, yeah. It's, it's entering into a, a, a new phase, basically, far before you know a new edition even comes out. I know, and with, with acquisitions like D&D Beyond, partnerships with massive companies like Critical Role now, um, their release schedule, the books that are coming out at a faster rate, they're releasing more miniatures, they're partnering with WizKids on a lot of stuff, they're partnering with Netflix for Stranger Things, they're like, thing, the ball is really starting to move now, and in many ways I think removing what I would consider some dead weight with the rest of Hasbro's toy offerings I mean, Hasbro does have other... I mean, Hasbro has vast amounts of lines, is, is 
far as I'm aware. Oh, so many. None, none of, but yeah, none of them are probably as as prevalent or as growing rapidly as for sure. With, uh, the two Wizards of the Coast properties, Magic the Gathering and D and D. And Magic the Gathering also growing quite a bit. In oh my God! Years. Yeah, it's been putting on massive amounts of profit. Oh yeah, in the past five years, I think. And ultimately. We're just a couple of fucking idiots in, in Kentucky. It's well noted. That uh, we could be just totally off base with our thought. I Ultimately, I don't think it really matters for us as D&D fans and players. Yeah, I don't think it's going to... That, that effect will be felt this far down. Maybe, you know, one of those... Maybe one day if we do see them break off, we could see... Just a just a total change in in the way that they interact with community, but mm-hmm. at this time, yeah, we're we're we are going to be unaffected. Yeah, just seems like a bit of interesting things. A little follow up to some previous podcasting talk. Now, Sam, at least, yes, yes, we've talked about the NFT. Before. We have talked about the NFT before. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> All right. So, Zoltan Boros and Gabor Zizkisia. And this is why I asked Sam to read this story. Zizkis. Gabor Zizkis, two Hungarian-born fantasy and sci-fi illustrators who have worked on everything from Magic the Gathering and D&D to World of Warcraft and Star Wars, will launch their first NFT collection, Girls, Robots, Dragons, which uses the latest dynamic NFT technology from Galaxis to build bridges to their fans. Girls, Robots, and Dragons collection is comprised of 9,000 double-sided NFT collectibles featuring 15 unique characters, 5 girls, 5 robots, 5 dragons, and exists on the Ethereum blockchain. Owners of the GRD NFTs will gain access to other exclusive art, numbered prints, and redeemables. Pre-sales go Pre-sale starts June 3rd with early access on June 6th to start minting NFTs and public sales will begin on June 7th. This is a lot of words that I had to look up. Uh, well, last time we, we talked about NFTs, but I had to refresh myself. Now, and we don't get it. I get it. I get NFTs enough to know that the current way NFTs are being used is useless. Yes. As a way to prove that you officially own a specific piece of art, you don't get the copyright. Nope. You don't get the creation credit for you just own that specific digital printing on a block on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So you can validate that it's yours. No one gives a shit about the original digital version of anything. No. Because there is no distinguishable difference between original and copies of digital art. Now, if NFTs were to be used in such a way that, say, if you were buying a concert ticket, you would get an NFT of your ticket that you can validate as yours and tie to you as an individual, so you don't have to worry about your ticket being stolen and used by someone else, or... In, a, in an eventual metaverse future, you want to be like, look what I'm doing, and you can show off your metaverse, you can show off your NFT ticket. But that is, that is something that is real, that has a benefit outside of simply a digital belonging. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that you have to pay a lot of money for no. on top of. Like, if... 
maybe maybe the first official printing of the next like D and D seven E seventh edition in like twenty years or whatever. The fir- they make a special first copy of the original run, mm-hmm. and with that comes a special NFT that you just get to be like, look, the person that owns this NFT is the person, the, the original owner of this NFT is the person that had the original 7th edition book. Yeah. I, I can be more behind that. I still think it's kind of dumb. And like you said, maybe even more so as we get all into, like, when when it's no longer, oh, it's really interesting that your friend has an Oculus Rift. Yeah. Or, or, or yeah. You're, we're, like, doing things where we walk into, yeah, metaverse buildings. Maybe there's metaverse museums. And you can then say, oh, look, I'm the only metaverse museum that has this monkey smoking a cigarette in blue. That's also one thing, but that's far down the future. It's so stupid. It's so... All their value, too. But, but yeah, yeah so, so we, we I'm not buying any of these and, and I, I, I did I looked at you can go check out the uh, the gallery of their art it is fantastic it's great it's, art. it's great art I'm still not buying it yeah, yeah. fucking right click save image there you go it's <laughs> yours you don't need to own the original fucking version verified by the blockchain of ethereum like Come on. <laughs> you want, if you want it as your fucking phone background, right-click save image as. Mm-hmm. You're fine. If you would like to use this to support those artists, sure. fine. Whatever. Do whatever you want. I'm just saying, if you're getting it because NFTs are going to expand in value, they're going to go the way of many new technologies where it explodes and is super valuable and then immediately crashes. And this isn't Bitcoin. No. no. This isn't going to be Ethereum proper. NFTs are going to crash and burn. I'm calling it right now. We're big fans of Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. Mm-hmm. He's a big proponent of the NFTs. I think that is the stupidest thing. Like he's got a, He has a lot of foresight about many things. NFTs are not going to be that thing. At least not how they are now. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think the current iteration of them and the current, like you said, the current way they're being used is the thing that if you invest now will get you lots of money in the future. I think in a couple of years down the line, maybe they'll come up with something very useful and getting in first, getting your foot in the door then. But that makes a lot more sense than any of this shit. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're. We're, We're very angry, angry about, about nothing right, right now. now. So, so what's the next topic? topic? <laughs> I love getting angry about nothing. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, the first mega dungeon, bump, bump, mega bump. dungeon, will live again. Goodman Games has launched a Kickstarter campaign to fund publication of a three-volume boxed set that brings a classic Dungeons and Dragons adventure, The Dark Tower, to life, both in its original format updated and digitized, as well as a version updated with 5th edition rule sets for use in current forms of D&D. So you can play it in the original, I believe it was AD&D, and as well as in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Each volume presents a different way of using Dark Tower. The first volume is a high-quality reprint of the original adventure. The second volume updates the adventure for 5th edition D&D rules, and the final volume expands on the campaign setting of Dark Tower, which allows for an entire mini-campaign based around exploring Dark Tower outside the scope of the original adventure. Uh, Dark Tower 
It's an early D&D module written by Janelle Jacques and published by Judges Guild, an early third-party publisher of D&D material. The adventure itself sends players into, an aband- into the abandoned temple of Mitra. When previous groups of explorers ventured into the temple, they unleashed a curse upon the land, which the players now need to solve. Players will need to contend with the undead and followers of the evil god Set as they delve deeper into the Dark Tower. The original adventure was long considered to be one of the top D&D adventures of all time, with that adventure being nominated for an H.G. Wells Award back in 1979. Hmm. Backers of the Kickstarter will get a PDF version of the updated version of Dark Tower with a $50 pledge. The f- the full three-volume set is available with a $50 pledge as well. Goodman Games also has a number of add-on items, in cu- including uh, Goodman Games has a number of add-on items, including pewter miniatures of characters from Dark Towers, a T-shirt, and a custom set of dice. As of the current recording, there are 12 days to go. As of the posting of this podcast, there will be about two and a half, three days left in this Kickstarter. It is currently raised $372,298 of the $10,000 goal that they originally had with 2,837 backers. <sighs> Dark Tower's cool. That sounds cool. <laughs> I, did, I did find it interesting that they're doing pewter minis. I think that's to go back to the feel of old D&D miniatures that were predominantly pewter with slots at the bottom to be put into plastic bases. But still, I, I mean, I, I get that, but uh, I, I imagine that would come out. I, I, my thought would have been like, oh, pewter is the higher tier where you probably get the plastic equivalents, but eh. I mean, I think it's really cool. Just for the sake of preservation, I'm a, I, I've, I think I've mentioned before, I'm a big proponent of video game preservation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think it's in the last podcast linked here. <laughs> Figure out which podcast that is, and I'll happily link it in the YouTube video. <laughs> but with, with video games, it's a lot easier to, like, if you have the physical thing, you can rip it, put it on the internet, and you have a digitized version. When it comes to these books, they're not as widely released as many video games are. They don't have an easy way to just pull the data and then reuse it. You have to physically scan the whole thing, and even then, a scan of a book is never going to be as nice as the original book. Whereas, in many cases, ROMs that are running on a PC or a modded handheld device can run sometimes indistinguishable from the original version. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be purists that are saying, well, you know, it's one frame less per second and the timings of this and that and blah de blah blah fine, whatever. I like these this sort of preservation of the history of D&D and other tabletop RPG rules. I love that they're just straight up doing a reprinting of the original mm-hmm. with updated quality um, just making it a bit nicer, and then in, uh, and then changing it to fit within fifth edition rules. That's really cool. There's a reason that it blew past its uh, funding goal, and from what I've seen in the comments on uh, the the Kickstarter, people are very excited. Yeah, I can imagine. If it won an H.G. Wells award, I don't really know what that is, but I don't either. But it sounds cool. I mean, H.G. Wells wrote the Time Machine. He was one of the, you know, he was a 
very prevalent sci-fi, one of the very early sci-fi authors. Ooh, ooh, gosh. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at a picture of the dice set that they're going to include, and it looks like poopy brown. It looks poopy brown with green uh, numbering. Ooh, the miniatures look nice. Miniatures are cool. Those are definitely some cool minis. Okay, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. I would not be opposed to getting that one when it comes out. It looks like they have uh, previous old editions of D&D that they've done through previous. First six volumes. Oh, the first six volumes uh, in the original Adventures Reincarnated series, as they're calling it, are available at a 20% discount with this project. If you order $100 or more of the original Adventures Reincarnated add-ons, they will offer free shipping on the books as well. And it includes things like Into the Borderlands, the Isle of Dread, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, the Lost City, Castle Amber, and the Temple of Elemental Evil. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. They blew past, like, all of their stretch goals. <laughs> they, oh, okay, not, not quite all of them. Not quite all of them. They want, The next one, at $400,000, they'll do a custom adventure set in the Dark Tower universe. I suppose there's still time. If you're watching this live, go check it out. Not right now, in, like, an hour. When yeah, we check die. it out after we finish recording the podcast. That's neat. That's pretty cool. You know, I like things like that, and I'd love to play it, because, but, uh, man, we just don't have enough time in our lives. For yeah, there's too many, too many cool things to play, not enough time to play them, not enough people willing to schedule their lives around playing them as well. Right. Speaking of which, Spelljammer, a campaign that I think is really cool, but we're probably not going to play it for at least five or seven years. We'll do the wrap-up. We'll wrap this bitch up. We'll wrap it up with WizKids is producing minis for Spelljammers. From asteroids to nautilus, nautiloids, space galleons, and more. Prices will range from $62.99 for smaller boxes to $262.49 for the Astral Dreadnought. Now, I want to point out my personal favorites here are Asteroid 3 and Asteroid 2. Ooh, those are both good ones. Those are good asteroids. Um, as well... As Asteroid 1. I think I, those are probably I, my favorite. Um, th th those are good ones. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I think those are, those are going to be sleeper hits. I think they really are. They really are. Now, I, I think they kind of limited their options. I feel like an Asteroid 4 or an Asteroid 7 Ooh. in particular would have been like very nice. But, you know, they had to limit their options. They, you, can't make, you can't make the whole set Asteroids. No. I get it. No. I get it. If... You get that fucking what is it, night spider? Oh yeah, the uh, yeah the night spider. It's getting thrown away. I want never to be seen again. I want the swarm of murder comments. <laughs> That's a real one. That's a real one. That is a real one. The the a lot of the ships are cool too. The cosmic horror, the tyrant ship, the turtle ship. It's all very cool. All very cool. Very interesting. Uh, the other wrap ups. Dungeons & Dragons debuts an impressive Vecna statue that they're doing with WizKids uh, with Stranger Things Season 4. The new villain is Vecna. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen that. I don't really care. But they D&D uh, did a video on their YouTube with Chris Perkins, the D&D narrative lead. He explained the history of Vecna for people that are into the show and announced the partnership with WizKids where they're going to release this statue. Sadly, it is not a miniature. 
There's going to be a display statue, though, if you want a giant Vecna for your campaign, a la Matt Mercer in campaign one of Critical Role, I'm sure it would serve that purpose just fine. Uh, it's going to be, <laughs> this is oddly specific number, $262.49 and will be released at some point this year. Same amount as the Astro Dreadnought. Hmm. That is an oddly specific number. That is an oddly specific number. They're gargantuan minis, so... That well, one of them's a statue, <laughs> and one of them's a gargantuan mini, so fair. And finally... And finally, Dimension 20's next Dungeons & Dragons show is all about vampires. Jasmine Bueller is set to run a six-part D&D 5e game for Erika Ishii, Carlo, Carlos Luna, Zach Oyama, and Isabel Rowland. The game will take place in 19th century Transylvania with some embellishments and custom rules for this non-traditional D&D setting. It was set to premiere on June 8th at 7 p.m. on Dropout TV. That is the day that this podcast is posted. If you're watching it live, it's a week from yesterday. I, I looked at the calendar, don't worry. I made sure that I was accurate with that. Now, that's all the news that we've got to discuss today. The news. Before we get into this lovely, unearthed arcana, we're going to throw it back in the Wayback Machine, Time Machine, to... Our past selves talking with Cisco and Steven of the Role-Playing Degenerates. What are we talking about? I don't know yet because we haven't decided. Thank you guys for being on the podcast. Yes. This is the first interview we've done. Yes, that was very nice. Oh, you thank you. Awesome. Those are very awesome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks now, for having us. why are you degenerates? And are you degenerates in like other spots in your lives? Or is it like just for role-playing in D&D? Uh... <laughs> Cisco <laughs> that. Um, so this was came all together you know group of people or whatever and I kind of was like what kind of explains us as players in D&D and it seemed that we were just all degenerates when we role played um, like we're very just raunchy or you know we'll do anything and everything uh, we'll piss off the DM it's you know we'll throw them through loops it's just kind of who we were, and thankfully, DMs like Steve and stuff like that are very uh, nice about it. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of our games. Uh, we have a lot of unique characters that come in there. Uh, <laughs> That's special so. D&D. You know. And, yeah, and, and I, basically, I basically choose my characters to be unique. I, play, I think my first normal character was with Steve. I'm playing a normal furball, regular circle of the moon druid. That's it. Very classic. So, I, I guess we're just kind of dodging the question about being a degenerate in other parts of your lives. Oh uh, no, I'm not dodging that. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been. Uh, I'm just kind of a loud, obnoxious person. I'm a very outgoing extrovert most of the time. Uh, I guess I've been a degenerate that way and going out and um, a lot, I used to do a lot of stupid things. Just, I mean, uh, yeah. Thank God, things like that. <laughs> or become him. Well, <clears throat> we actually started playing in the military. So if you know anything about military behavior, uh, there's nothing off the table in oh, those sure. games. So, you know, it kind of comes from like, you think of like the most you know, raunchy, grotesque stuff you see in, like, Critical <laughs> Role and times 10, and that's what you see in the military. So I think that's just kind of with the nature of 
being in the military, you get some degenerative and qualities. Now, don't I, let. I think oh. I think it is I think it is important that we bring up that we are recording this on Memorial Day, and we want to thank you for your service to this country. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for <laughs> me and Steve are both vets uh, at this point now. Long nice. luxurious hair. <laughs> uh, what branches? Um, I was in the Marine Corps, and then I switched over to the National Guard where I met Cisco. And I was a uh, full-time National Guard uh, for the state of Illinois. Okay, so Steven's the badass one. And no Space Force? <laughs> you, no you, Space Force. You'd, I wish, I wish, yeah. You'd be, you'd be surprised how, uh, how good Cisco is at hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> I would certainly hope so. There's, uh, I guess, being good at hand-to-hand combat... Uh, of course, I have done martial arts as a wee lad. Um, nowadays, I'm pretty sure that if you spilled soup on me, I'd apologize to you. But uh, do you ever bring that? Do you ever kind of bring that into your role play? Do you prefer to do like a much more like descriptive role play when it comes to combat? Um, I'll say the few times that it's happened as me as a DM, I'll explain because both me and and Cisco here. I've been doing martial arts. We both wrestled. Uh, we're both blue belts in jiu-jitsu. have been doing it over five years. We've both done Muay Thai. We've both boxed. Cisco's done legitimate MMA. So when it comes down to like actually doing it in the game, there's been a few times where grappling has got brought up as me as the DM, and I will get into like your pass and mount. You'll do stuff mm-hmm. like that. Additionally, um, we're working on a subclass um, called the Helix Monk where we actually bring in real life training that you would do so so levels of exhaustion are a thing training every day is a part of rp um you know using certain techniques like grappling and submitting people is a thing in this new class so we've actually brought some of our legitimate martial arts into the monk where it's sometimes the monk is like you get a thousand hits and now we're kind of trying to break down like well why do you get a thousand hits is it because you're more proficient at punching kicking uh, you know, calf kicks are like a huge factor in fighting. We're going to bring that in. So we are working on a few things we've been playing with as far as real martial arts in D&D. Uh, do you think you're going to change up any of the rules around, like, grappling or restrained or replacing attacks with one of those actions? Because a lot of people think that in most cases, rather than going into like, tackle and grapple someone, it's just more effective to hit them with your weapon, or in the case of a monk, your fists. How do you think you're going to work around that? It's actually pretty tough, because everyone is so used to... Well, there's like kind of two things that happen. One, when, you first, like, when a fir- player first grapples another character, they think, without reading the rules, like, oh, I got him, he can't attack, he can't mm. do anything. But obviously they can still attack and everything, and nothing's, nothing changes other than you're, half, you're limited to speed. Just I like think. in a real fight, if you've so, got someone locked in, they can still like throw an elbow or a kick, something to try and yeah. get yeah. Which yeah. I think, res- say, I think the grappler feat helps you with that too, yeah. but if you can incorporate it into yeah. a class, yeah. something like something specific to a monk, I think it would be really cool. Mm-hmm. And then you think about uh, me and Steve being grapplers before, there's little guys out there that can grab out grapple big guys. Oh, yeah. So you could even you could even incorporate a dexterous grappler versus a strength based grappler if you want if we wanted to go down that road. Yeah. Yeah. So I think with the Helix Monk, I think if if you can take like you can take certain paths, you can take um, you can take a grap more of a grappling path, and then that will give you an advantage on grappling anything like one size larger than you and below. 
And then it also gives you advantage on pinning it as well. Obviously, if it's a dragon or like a you know a larger character, you're not going right. to grapple. I that, mean, obviously, that just I would love sense. to see the monk get a dragon into a headlock and just like hold him down, and it's like I've got this like two foot part of your neck pinned. You're obviously. <laughs> <a straight male. laughs> That's a great visual. That yeah. is a wonderful visual. <laughs> so I guess kind of keeping with the homebrew. Um, actually, I remember when we. I don't know who it was. Uh, was operating the account when we were doing our 10k live stream um that's actually how we met you guys was somebody was doing was was talking was chatting with us in the comments um and actually said that they had just come from uh, t uh homebrew play testing um how much homebrew do you guys do and how much do you test it because we do a decent amount of homebrew we don't test it. i mean we theoretically <laughs> test it <laughs> We go through several people. We don't play at the table. Yeah, that's it's like a tough te testing. It is a tough thing. So when I'm making something homebrew, I will literally play it out with five different characters. I'll use my I'm a DM for a group, and I'll play every single one of those characters and bring it in, and like I'll try to like attack like I would and play like I would and see how it work. But honestly, it doesn't work as well as you think because the players know their characters in and out. And additionally, they'll play it a different way than I ever play it. So I find out that if you can just write what the general theme of a homebrew, like why are you doing this homebrew, what's the uh, origin of this homebrew, and you like, stick to the core of whatever it is, you'll generally come out on top, not even playtesting it that much. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I, I talk about one class that I hate, which is Circle of the Moon. <laughs> yeah. It's like my least favorite is, class. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I talk about that because it just seems like it wasn't thought out and then it's just thrown out there and it's blatantly obvious that you get 380 hit points at level 7 and you know there's a lot of these things. But other than that one instance, I actually do like a lot of the rule structure in 5e. So I, 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 in, in my opinion, if you stick to standard array and you look at um, picking whatever two things you want to be proficient at or whatever the book says, you can be relatively balanced. So you can be whatever character you want um, as far as a balance standpoint goes. But if you're talking about like homebrewing new things, <clears throat> I don't play test as much as I used to play test. That's fair. That's fair. We, we, our methodology, we go through, we create, like I, I come up with a subclass, I run it through Sam, he puts it through the grinder, gives it back to me, I put it through the grinder, and then we have a couple of our uh, friends that we play D&D with that tend to go through. And by the time we are through with that entire process, and then our final process, like editing for like grammar and misspellings, because we do that a lot, and making sure that features that are somewhat similar to other things in the book have similar terminology so that we're not missing anything. By that point, we found that yeah. it's, for the most part, balanced. We might yeah, be the, off base, yeah. but... Yeah, and the DM can always, you know, balance it out and be like, hey, it's, it's a little strong. Let's just tone it back a little bit. Yeah. That's what we're working on right now with the Circle of the Moon Druid between me and Steve is that since I'm playing one and there's other things that are coming future of the game but the one thing I'm working on is looking at the other Druid classes and how their special abilities work. Uh, I think we're going to tone it back to one shift change a day. It's going to be an, an added feature besides being a part of the shift change. It'll be one CR whatever high higher shift change a day but you'll still have your lower shift changes that you can do okay 
So make so, your so making your wild shape more of like your one big. I'm putting all my energy into this thing, but you can still become like a cat or a bat. Yeah, and we talked about it. it was like the 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 other shift changes. They're basically nothing. They're used for utility only. If you ever if you ever even think about it, it's like you get CR one at what level three or six or something like that on a regular druid, and you're like CR one monsters are useless by your time you're level six. So. Yeah. Other than just like a couple that are just a pool of hit points to be taken away. Yeah, if you get in a sticky situation, situation where you're like, okay, I need to turn into a bear just to take a couple more hit points while I'm running away, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. All right. All right. So, uh, kind of getting into your guys' you, uh, TikTok and other creative processes. So, like we mentioned, there are two of us and. Uh, there's three of you. There's three of you. <laughs> you use a lot of brain power just existing. Existing. Um, <laughs> what is kind of the creative process for any of your uh, any of your your medias? Because obviously we know you have TikTok, you have uh, Twitch, I believe, correct? And yep. um, YouTube. Yeah. YouTube. Yeah. The whole array. I have I have your list here. I just hadn't pulled it up. <laughs> it's all right. It, it's all. It's basically all social platforms. So. We're still working with uh, Trovo and getting that started, and Twitch, YouTube are the main two live stream ones, and we do post to them. That way people can go back and watch them if they want. And then we got Spotify for Spotify. podcasts, which Steve is rolling with the podcast mostly, uh, or s- strictly Steve right now. And then we have um, Twitter, Instagram, and the TikTok, obviously. Always, always the TikTok. Yeah, yeah so... It's kind of we have like a really strange ecosystem. Basically, Chris uh, and Cisco handle all the TikTok and almost everything else. We're all together on Discord, running games for people for free. It's base. It's basically a strategy. We're gonna do everything for free to get as many people as we can in there to build our community. Um, and it's it's been working out for us. We've had a lot of good games. And then I do uh, podcasts because I enjoy talking about the nuts and the bolts. And I like talking about, like, the hard issues, uh, the, you know, the soft issues, talking about Critical Role. I like talking about, um, like, like yesterday I just watched most of um, Stranger Things, the new season. And if you haven't yeah. seen it, it's, like, the best D&D <laughs> commercial you could ever see. It's, it's, it's amazing. But I like to talk about that with people. So I really don't like to, tic- to do the TikToks that often. It's mostly Cisco and Chris. And Chris is probably what I would say like the epicenter brain mm-hmm. of it all, and then we just chime in with like our ideas here and there. I I, do, I will say, I watched the first season of Stranger Things. <laughs> That's about it. Vecna <laughs> looks just very nice. The Vecna storyline is it's it, it's like it's like they did such a good job because it makes you feel like. Uh, well, first of all, they ha- I don't want to say too much, but they have like a they they show a game of D and D. And it's like the most epic. It's like the game we all have. Like we have those moments where you're sweating because the character's about mm-hmm. to die, and the DM's just like, "Oh, this might not go good." And then you have those moments where like you you kill somebody with like ten hit points left. So they they really capture that in this season, and then they really capture what it feels like as if Vecna did come into our real world. So both of those things for like D and D players is like, dude, that's that's what we want to do. We want to we want to see that. So it's pretty cool for D and D. Wow, wasn't, wasn't that, that just awesome? Aw- that was such a great. Oh, <laughs> oh good. Things thanks, past us. They're, they're those guys. They're just the best. Wow, they really are the best. They we uh, 
They were some of the first guys that we've uh, we talked we interacted with as creators. Uh, it was appropriate that they were our first interview, and. And we're looking forward to collaborating with them more in yes. the future. Uh, next week, as of the release of this podcast on June 15th, you'll be able to listen to the full unedited version of that interview, as well as our attempt to get them to spill big secrets about their future endeavors, trying to spoil their unannounced project. It's a good time. It's a good time. We might participate in it. Undecided. Because there aren't really details for it yet. No, we, we know very little at this point. We know very little. But what we do know quite a bit about, I'm the fucking Segway master today. <laughs> the Giant Options Unearthed Arcana for 2022 has been released on dnd.wizards.com. You can download a free copy of it yourself. This is playtest material from Mackenzie DeArmas, James Wyatt, Ben Petrisor, and Jeremy Crawford. As it is playtest material, this is not official. Consider using it in your campaigns at your own risk. It could be considerably overpowered or underpowered, and it may or may not be included in a future book. But as we have known for many years with Unearthed Arcana releases, it's probably going to be released in something. I don't know what they would release this in. I don't know. I'd be intrigued. Um, so we know that we do know that Dragonlance is coming to us in the future, and dragons and giants are actually natural enemies if you read the lore. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Now, as playtest material, they are going to be looking for feedback on this, particularly from people that have used it, the options available in this, uh, in this UA in-game, uh, but as well from people that have simply just read through it and have played quite a bit of D&D. In the coming weeks, I would suspect, they're going to release a Giants Options survey, which you can fill out to help them with their playtest material. It includes three subclasses, the Barbarian Path of the Giant, the Druid Circle of the Primeval, and the Wizard Runecrafter. Which, by the way, the Wizard Runecrafter is my favorite. I think so. I would, I think, I would think so as well. Before. It also includes a collection of feats. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It includes a collection of ten feats, uh, most of them requiring a level prerequisite, one of them requiring the previous feat as a prerequisite in addition to a level. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get to why I think that one's a bit unnecessary when we get to that. But let's start with the Barbarian, the Path of the Giant. It gets two features at level three, giant power, which lets you learn how to speak, read, or write giant, as well as one other language of your choice, if you already know giant. And you can learn the druidcraft or thaumaturgy cantrip of your choice using wisdom as your spellcasting modifier, as well as giant's havoc. Your rages pull strength from the primal might of giants, and you gain the following benefits while you rage. Crushing hurl. When you make a successful ranged attack with a thrown weapon using strength, you can add your rage damage bonus to the attack's damage roll, and your reach increases by five feet. And if you are smaller than large, you become large along with anything you are wearing. If there isn't enough room for you to become large, your size doesn't change. Note about the about being a large creature, you take up a f uh, two by two section you on do. the battle map instead of just one square. Uh, increasing your range by five feet. Always good. Always good. Uh, if you are a hobgoblin <laughs> with a glaive, your reach is now 20 feet. Just want to put that out there. I mean, 20 feet away from a two-by-two set. Like, you can, you, you can basically swing this bitch wide and hit <laughs> most things on the map if you're standing in the middle of it. I will say, so obviously that first, that first ability, the giant power... It's very just flavorful. It's not, it's not going to hugely impact most things. I think it's great giving um, 
barbarians these nice little cantrips, because mm -hmm. even though they can't cast spells while they're raging or concentrate on a spell while they are raging, giving them something out of combat to do just for flavor is always good. Just be able to Love shout it. louder, to be able to help with it, you know, do something intimidating. Um, as far as Crushing Hurl, though, I think, uh, I don't know about you, but I think Wizards might be overestimating how many people use thrown weapon like rules well most people just say yeah, i want to throw my weapon you're like cool there's actually rules around throwing weapons that say you can't just do that all the time yeah which I th they're leaning into the idea that the ranged attack that a giant gets is usually throwing a boulder at someone yes that's very true. Uh, and as we'll get to with the 10th level ability it's encouraging you to throw things mm -hmm. and that's this is more of a setup for that in the future i feel like the main benefit here is the reach increase as well as the larger size um, making it easier for you to gain flanking, for you to lock down the battlefield as you have more squares with which enemies, which with enemies would have to move through and allow you to get opportunity attacks, plus your reach is longer, so more up. If you paired this with like Polar Master and a Glaive, like even without being a Hobgoblin, a Glaive and Polar Master being able to attack things when they come into your reach and your reach being 15 feet, do you mean Hobgoblin or Bugbear? Oh, is it Bugbear? I think it's Bugbear that you mean. Oh, that's embarrassing. Ooh. That's Bugbearissing. It's not. You're unbearable. You're unbugbearable. Chat, do you see what I had to put up with? The sixth level ability is Elemental Cleaver allowing you to infuse your weapons with primordial energy. When you enter your rage, you can infuse a weapon of your choice that you are holding with one of the following damage types, acid, cold, fire, thunder, or lightning. While you wield the infused weapon during your rage, it deals an extra 1d6 damage of the chosen type, as well as all of the weapon's damage itself becoming that type. When it hits, it gains the throne property. Oh, it also gains the throne property with a normal range of 20 feet and a long range of 60. If you throw the weapon, it reappears in your hand. The instant after it hits or misses a target, the infused weapon's benefits are suppressed while a creature other than you wields it. While raging and holding the infused weapon, you can use a bonus action to change the infused weapon's current damage type to a different one from one of the above types. This is where you're going to start yeah. throwing your weapons. Having it reappear, you're going to have a range of 20 feet normal. So... Depending on your build, maybe not a bit, not maybe not much longer than your reach. Um, an additional 1d6 damage, plus making all of your attacks elemental damages, which is going mm -hmm. to make it a lot easier to overcome uh, resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, slashing, and piercing, unless you have a magic weapon. But yeah, I think that it's just kind of a straight buff to uh, to the barbarian, as well as giving you a reason to throw your weapon, giving you a ranged option. Yeah, I think that is covering two things that the Barbarian often misses, which is it's either it's either just so an esoteric or like very small use ability or buff that you usually get at level six, Yeah. Um, or just like, here, you have another attack. Um, and then the range option. Because if you, if you think back to like um, some popular media, such as Critical Role Campaign 1, that was often a an issue that Grog. Travis had as Grog was he could never get across the battlefield even with 50 feet of movement. Yeah. He oftentimes, you know, 100 feet dash, well, then he can't take the attack. Exactly, action. exactly. Now, 
<laughs> the next the next ability is probably my favorite. The level 10 ability, Mighty Impel. Your connection to giant strength allows you to hurl both allies and enemies on the battlefield. As a bonus action, weaponizing your fucking bonus action. And your allies. And your allies. <laughs> you can choose one medium or smaller creature within your reach and move it to an unoccupied space you can see within 30 feet of yourself. An unwilling creature must succeed on a debt on a... Uh, an unwilling creature must succeed on a strength saving throw, DC equal to 8 plus proficiency plus your strength, to avoid the effect. If, at the end of this movement, the thrown creature isn't on a surface or liquid that can support it, the creature falls, taking damage as normal and landing prone. That is one thing that I feel like is going to have to get changed. Because <laughs> within 30 feet of yourself, you could throw an enemy straight up. Straight up. Yep. And a 30-foot drop is what? 3d6. 3d6. Plus they're prone. Plus, that's just funny. <laughs> that's uh, that's great. That is great. Isn't that awesome? I love I love the visual of like you grow large. You take your fighter or like your cleric, your cleric that has like um, heavy armor proficiency heavy and a arm- hammer and a hammer and divine strikes as well as the spirit guardians up and you oh, just yeah. chuck them into the middle and then you just grab an enemy. You throw it up in the air. You throw it against a wall. That's fun shit. <laughs> Especially that throwing the ally, like, that is giving them an extra 30 feet of movement on your turn. Mm-hmm. Which oftentimes, as a bonus action, like, there are some instances where you can use a reaction, or I think the Battlemaster has certain maneuvers they can use, but those are limited. Yes. So this just, once around, you can chuck your, you know, if you're right next to your fighter, you're like, go over there! That's awesome. It's awesome. Also... If you're in the midst of combat and, like, the rogue takes a couple of hits and is about to go down, you can grab them and throw them to the back line to your cleric to heal. It's also awesome, yeah. Fucking cool. So much usage. The final ability is the 14th level ability, Demiurgic Colossus. Basically, this is a buff to everything you have acquired at this point. Your reign, your reach include... When you are raging, your reach increases by 10 feet, your size is huge instead of large, and you can now use your mighty impel to move creatures that are large or smaller, and the extra damage dealt by your elemental cleaver feature increases to 2d6. This is just a flat buff on every, buff yep. on everything. Uh, huge, is that still a 2x2, by, by or is that 3x3? Three uh, three? Huge is 3x3, three three, I believe. So you get more squares that you have access to you on a battle map for the purposes of... Uh, being in combat with that does open you up to taking a lot more damage but but it also allows you if you take like the grappler feet you can now grapple dragons yeah (laughs) because you can grapple i believe up to one size larger than you that is fucking awesome that is cool that is holy fuck that's cool this is a very close contender for my favorite i still like the wizard runecrafter more but this is pretty fucking cool now Druid, the Circle of the Primeval. Would you like me to take this one? Yes. All right. The Circle of the Primeval teaches that through the land may... Though the land may change over time, it knew... Trevor... No. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) What do the level two abilities say? Oh, my God. Basically, you can summon a dinosaur. All right. Keepers of old at level two. You can... Your connection to the mighty primeval behemoth allows you... New insight into the ancient world. You gain proficiency in history. When you make an intelligence history check, you can roll a d4 and add the number rolled to the ability check. Extra proficiency at level 2, always nice. 
uh, always on blessed for that specific ability. Also nice. I could also see more of this coming out because it, you know, but just great, great having more efficiencies, great having expertise, but you're kind of missing something like else. So I can see them adding more features like this. Yeah. Uh, the second one is the primeval companion. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna read this entire thing because it's pretty long. But basically, if you are familiar with the Wildfire Druid, you a can, lot of similar mechanics with summoning with your Wild Shape. Yep. You use your Wild Shape and you can summon an ally. In this case, it's a Primeval Companion. You can flavor it how you want. Um, if you do not give it commands uh, using, I believe, your bonus action, then it just takes the dodge action. Mm-hmm. Armor class tied to your proficiency bonus, same with your hit points tied to your level. Uh, it has a very basic bludgeoning attack or piercing or slashing, depending on your what choice. you choose. Uh, not super useful. It's reaction. It has a reaction intercept attack, so it can like take damage instead of or take half the damage that uh, a, a, a target that you designate would normally take. Right. Um, like you said, not. Not hugely useful, and it does take a while to get buffed. Yeah, I, th I, I think I like the Wildfire Spirit more than this. I do too. Right out of the gate. Uh, yes, the Wildfire Spirit is one a little more flavorful. It has a better uh, attack option, and it has a better the, the teleport ability. The teleport, it has a ranged attack option. It has a ranged attack, which is nice. All right, level six, prehistoric conduit. You learn how to channel your magic through the pri your primeval companion. When you cast a spell, you can have it cast as though it were your companion. In addition, if the primeval companion is affected by spells that you cast that allows a creature to make a saving throw against its effect, the companion has advantage on the saving throw. Uh, if the companion would normally take half damage and is successful, then it takes no damage and half damage when it fails on the effect. Basically kind of like uh, evasion. Evasion. But for everything. Evasion mixed with fine familiar. Yeah. Again, it's fine, but again, we have Fine Familiar that can do this. Yeah. We have other things that can you can bond. Oh, the Trickster Clerics. Oh, the Doppelganger. The Doppelganger. The, the Duplicate. The Illusory Duplicate. Invoke Duplicity. There we go. Yes. You, again. Yeah. Uh, having your spells originate from somewhere else can be useful. Very much so. Okay. But again, we see this in plenty other things. This is not a huge buff to the spirit. Um, tenth level is Titanic Bond. The uh, primeval companion grows to a large size, and when you summon it, you can either grant it a climbing speed or a swimming speed equal to its walking speed. In turn... Chester, why are you like this? Why do you do this? In turn, the primeval companion lends you some of its terrifying might. Once per turn, when while it's summoned, when you hit a creature with a attack or deal damage to a creature you can see with a spell you cast, you can force that creature to make a wisdom saving throw against your spell save DC. On a failure, that creature is frightened of you until the end of its next of your next turn. Now, this should be the sixth level ability, and yes. the sixth level ability should just be innate at level two. I agree. And then find something else to do at tenth level. Frightened is fun. It's nice. It's a good buff. It's not overpowered at level 6. And especially for a single turn. It's once per turn. It, you know, and they have a, like, it's a, it's a save, so, yeah, it's fine. Exactly. That would have, that would have brought this, this, this druid class up for me, but. That, at, at level 10, at level 10, the frightened condition, while still kind of useful, not nearly as useful as it is at level 6, 7, 8, 9. 
Exactly. exactly. All right. Uh, level 14, Scourge of the Ancients. You have learned to fully harness the titanic legacy of your companion. As part of a bonus action, you use... As part of the bonus action used to command your companion, you can expend a spell slot of any level to heighten your, uh, your companion's might, granting it the following benefits. Hulking Bohemoth. Uh, the companion becomes huge and gains temporary hit points equal to 10 times the level of the spell slot expended. If there isn't enough room for the companion to become huge, it obtains the maximum size possible. 2. Mauler. On a hit, the companion's strike deals additional damage equal to 1d8 plus the level of the spell expended. And 3. Titanic Stride. The companion's walking speed increases a number of feet equal to 5 times the spell level expended. These benefits last for 1 hour or until the companion vanishes or until you expend a spell slot for this feature again. I think this is perfectly fine for a 14th level ability. I think the level 6 and the level 10 ability should also be increasing its strike damage. Or at level 10, changing its stat block to something giving a bit it different. More like giving abilities, more uses. If, that's the, if that is the center point of this subclass, yeah. then why are we waiting to, why are we making it so weak up until, honestly, level 14? Yeah, I think making the level 10 ability, the level six ability, making the level six ability inherent with level two when you get the primeval companion, making the level 10 ability, like the stat block changes, mm -hmm. maybe level six, it also deal, it also can do two strikes a turn instead of one, one level after every other thing gets extra attack. Mm -hmm. Change the stat block at level 10 as you're, it, it's better and then you have this empowering ability that can make it useful a pseudo summoning spell at yeah. that point which i'm totally fine with quite a bit underpowered i don't see why you would pick this over the wildfire spirit unless you like giants and want to be a druid and want to summon a dinosaur that but even then useful as a dinosaur i was going to say but even then you have other options to still summon dinosaurs such as summon animal yeah it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Now, the wizard, the rune crafter. Rune crafter wizards enhance their spellcasting through the ancient power of runes, tradition that originates from giants. Go in the many, giants. In many lore. You get two level two abilities, runes of understanding. Uh, you, have, you unlock the ability to decode runes and languages regardless of their origin. You always have comprehend languages prepared. You can cast it without expending a spell slot and the spell doesn't count against the number of spells you have prepared. Notice that it doesn't say once per day. This is just, just an always, always. This is just an always on if you want it comprehend language, which whatever. That's fine. I mean, there's an evocation. That's that. Yeah. Uh, runic empowerment at level two as well. When you take the subclass, you learn how to amplify your magic through the application of various runes. Your knowledge of these runes is stored in your spellbook, though you determine the rune's cosmetic appearance. When you cast a spell using a spell slot, you can invoke one of the following runes, the life rune. When you invoke this rune, you can choose a creature you can see within 30 feet of you. You can choose yourself as well. The, cre the chosen creature gains temporary hit points equal to five times the level of the spell slot expended. The war rune, you choose a creature within 30 feet of you. Until the end of your next turn, attack rolls that target the chosen creature, gain a bonus equal to half the level of the spell slot expended, rounded up, minimum of one. And then the wind rune. When you invoke this rune, your speed increases by a number of feet equal to five times the level of the spell slot expended, and your movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. This benefit lasts until the start of your next turn. You can invoke no more than one rune per spell. You can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Options to, th this is kind of like sorcery points. A little, a little bit. bit. It's a little meta magic-y. It's a little... 
it's it's yeah, yeah it's kind, kind of meta magic meets, meets um not, not it's, it's one, one of the other, other uh, wizard schools, schools. I can't think of but, but yeah, yeah just maybe divination a little bit kind of like changing no, no transmutation there changing, there we go the transmuter stone the transmuter stone I and I like this. this. I like this is uh, as a second level ability. Yeah, this, this is fun. This is great. Um, it scales. It scales very well. The you passively being like you get like a mini. I think the war rune would be a little bit easier if it was just kind of like a one turn fairy fire, where you just get advantage on them. Like you hit them with some. You hit them with something. Um, well, actually. You don't even have to hit them with it. You can just choose. Anyway, I think the runes are perfectly good. You get them a good number of times per day. It's not overpowered. You can't be spamming this every single turn. Mm-hmm. It gives you a way to get out of something. If you're getting in a sticky situation, you can empower people and yourself with some extra hit points, temporary hit points, and you can make it easier for your allies to attack someone, a specific this is, target. This is a great buff, buff wizard. This makes, you, this makes you a much better backline shot caller for, yeah. your, for your team, being like, that's the guy we need to focus now. Uh, I'm going to help you so that you don't like the sort of general commanding your party, with which, you know, your party might not be okay with that, but it's powerful. Uh, the sixth level ability, Sigils of Warding. You can call on a rune of protection to guard yourself against threats. When you fail a strength, dexterity, or constitution saving throw, you can use your reaction to expend one use of your runic empowerment and succeed the saving throw instead. A mini legendary resistance. Yeah. yeah. Um... That's crazy at level six. I was going to say, as a level six ability, that was not what I was expecting. I would swap the level six and the level ten ability levels, and I think it would be fine. Personally. Fair. Even then, it is still only strength, dex, or constitution. But those are the saving throws that the wizard isn't inherently good at themselves, and constitution for concentrating on spells, it's going to make it a little, You can use your reaction to automatically... But then you're also using one of your runic empowerments, which at level six, you have three? Four. Four? It's level three? I think it's three until level seven. So it's two until level four, five, six, seven. Yeah, I believe it's... So yeah. Three. Three. Three soon to be four. Three soon to be four. Fine. But yeah, I think you could easily switch that with the 10th level ability. I would swap swap the level 6 and level 10 ability. The level 10 ability, Rune Maven, your understanding of runecraft has grown immensely. Whenever you use your arcane recovery feature... (coughs) I hope you got that. Oh, God. Because that is the ability. He read that word for word. Fuck you. (laughs) Rune Maven. Your understanding of runecraft has grown immensely. Whenever you use your arcane recovery feature, you also regain a number of expended uses of runic empowerment. The number of uses you regain can be no more than half your intelligence modifier rounded up, minimum of one. So at a maximum of intelligence, you get an additional three uses Mm -hmm. per per day. Which is very useful. Very, I think that's a very good ability. Yep, it's tied to the use of arcane recovery, which makes which makes it a pseudo short rest ability, which is useful. So you don't have to worry about do I choose one or the other? You just get both. You just get both. Um, I think that would be a perfect level six feature and make the powerful. You just succeed the saving throw with the level ten ability. Mm-hmm. Both of these abilities I'm fine with. And then finally, engraved enmi- enmity. Engraved enmity. 
the 14th level ability, you've mastered the art of wielding your runes directly against your foes. As a bonus action, you can target one creature you can see within 60 feet of yourself. The creature must succeed on a wisdom saving throw against your spell save DC or be magically marked by an enmity rune. The enmity rune appears as a faintly glowing mote of energy, blah, 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 blah. You get the following effects. Now, one thing I've, I want to note about this entire UA, you just get all of the effects. Yeah, for things that have been listed. You don't, you don't have, have to choose one or the other, or mm-hmm. one or yeah. The three effects are Runecrafter's Bane. The creature has disadvantage in saving throws made against spells you cast. Unveiled enemy. The radiance of the glowing rune makes the creature visible if it's invisible, and the creature can't become invisible while the rune persists. As well as woeful curse. When you mark the creature, and as a bonus action on subsequent turns for the duration, you can invoke the enmity rune to curse the, ter- the creature until the start of your next turn. The next time one of your allies hits the cursed creature with an attack roll, the target also takes 1d8 force damage, and the curse ends. Enmi- the enmity rune will last for one minute or until you lose your concentration, as if you were concentrating on a spell. Once you have marked a creature in this way, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest unless you expend a spell slot of third level or higher to use this feature again. I like being able to use a spell slot to use this feature again. Mm -hmm. I don't like that it requires concentration. By the time you're level 14, you've got a lot of really powerful concentration spells that you don't want to be foregoing when you're right. going to be doing this ins- or instead of doing it's like yeah you don't want to necessarily choose doing this or just doing a blaster spell yes. every round now as a bonus action it helps with your action economy all of the all of these abilities are useful i think the woeful curse is a little is a little um mucky it's a little kludgy. It's a little kludgy. I think there's probably a way to simplify it, especially if you're going, all right, my bonus action, do something. Somebody hits it, remember to remove the curse. Okay, doesn't get it again. But 10d8 over a minute, not bad. Yeah. It's basically like it gives you a way to use your bonus action again. Mm-hmm. Um, you get your bonus action activated where it can no longer be invisible. That one feels a little weird, just kind of random. I mean, I, I get it. It's, it's a... It's, it's a little, little fairy fiery, but a little then you also have to have like if it is already invisible, you have to have sea invisibility up, or you have to have um, what's the other invocation? There's something yeah, invocation. something true sight. sight or true yeah. Now, is it useful? Yes. I think the big thing here is disadvantage on saving throws against spells that you cast, yes. which is one of the reasons why I feel like. <sighs> I mean, at the same time, if you're cast, I believe if you cast a concentration spell, technically your concentration doesn't end on the thing previously until you complete the casting of the new thing, so it would still have disadvantage on the saving. You know what I mean. But that's a, that's a gray area. DMs might rule that differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think making this ability non-concentration is going to be perfectly fine. You get it once per day. Uh, with, with having to use a spell slot to use it again. So it's not like you're only getting one minute of a single creature getting automatic disadvantage on spells that you cast. And yeah. that's it. Um, powerful, yes. It is a 14th level ability, but not so broken that it would require concentration. In my I mind. I agree. That is my favorite subclass. I think... Followed very closely by the Barbarian. <laughs> I think... Um, I think I might choose the Barbarian just to step over. I think this is my one of my favorite wizard subclasses, but in this UA, I think I might go with the Barbarian 
just because I think it gives the barbarian something that the prime class and all the other subclasses are kind of missing. The barbarian subclass changes how you play barbarian. Which I, I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of as well. All good things. Now we get to the feats. There are ten feats. Ten feats. A lot of these have similar sort of vibes to them. Uh, well, we'll just go through the line. Uh, I'll go back and forth. Elemental touched. You gain, you've been exposed to the primordial magic of the elemental planes. You can learn either druid craft or thaumaturgy using intelligence, wisdom, or charisma as your spellcasting ability. You choose it when you get the feats. Whenever you finish a long rest, you can choose which element you are attuned to. Earth, fire, wind, or water. Is that right? Air, air, earth, fire, or water. Jeez. I went, I went Avatar the Last Amber under there. <laughs> you did, a little bit. Uh, whenever you finish, yeah. Depending on your choice, you can use a bonus action to cause one of the following effects. Air, you gain flying speed equal to your walking speed until the end of your turn. If you are airborne at the end of, the, of your turn using this movement and aren't held aloft by other means, you fall. Earth, you cause ground within 30 feet of you to become difficult terrain for one minute or until you create this effect again. During that time, you can move across the ground that is difficult terrain without expending extra movement. Fire, you surround yourself in a cloud of ash and smoke until the end of your turn. Your movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. And water, you can create a forceful surge of water directed at a creature within 15 feet of you that you can see. The creature must succeed a strength saving throw. DC equal to 8 plus your spellcasting ability modifier plus your proficiency bonus or be pushed up to 10 feet away from you and the water vanishes immediately after the creature succeeds or fails. You can create this effect a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Neat. It kind of sucks that you have to pick one at the beginning of the day. Yeah. yeah. I think the earth one is my would be my preferred or fire depending on how you use your character. A rogue, I think, would benefit more from fire. Uh, Earth would benefit more a barbarian or a fighter. Water. What what is also a little weird is, like, a battlemaster could honestly benefit from this, just to be able to do one of these abilities, which they would usually have to expend their superiority die to do. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's fine. I think anybody could take it, and it'd be fun. Perfectly fine. All right. Ember of the Fire Giants? Ember of the Fire Giants. Uh, this is an, this, you must be 8th level to take this. You've manifested the fiery combat emblematic of Fire Giants, granting you the following benefits. Born in Flame, you gain resistance to fire damage. And then the other one is Searing Ignition. When you take the attack action on your turn, you can replace one of your attacks with a magical burst of flame. Each creature within 15 feet of you that you can see... Of your choice. Of your choice. You must make a dexterity saving throw equal to 8 plus your proficiency plus your con mod. On a failed save, that creature takes... Those creatures take 2d6 plus your proficiency bonus fire damage and is and are blinded until the start of your next turn. On a successful save, they take half damage and have no additional effects. Uh, you can use this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per day. Yep. The next one, the Fury of the Frost Giant, is similar. You have resistance to cold damage, and when a creature hits you with an attack, you also get the additional ability. When a creature hits you with an attack roll, you can use your reaction to retaliate with a burst of magic. The creature must succeed a wisdom saving throw, DC equal to 8, plus proficiency plus con mod, or be frightened of you until the start of your next turn, or of its next turn, of its next turn. You can use your reaction in this way a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus where you gain it on a long rest. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. You're fine. Resistance to damage. This, this is basically just a buffed resilient. No, not resilient. 
Which one? Which one? Gives I'm, I'm a, uh, the elemental adept. Elemental adept helps with you doing things of an element. Is there is there anything that just gives you resistance? There, there might, might not be. be. Damn, that, that might. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, these are fine. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think, I mean, it's always good to have a little extra thing you can do with your attack action that's not just an attack in combat. Mm -hmm. All right, next is Guile of the Cloud Giant. Again, eighth level. You've manifested the airy speech and magic emblematic, emblematic of the Cloud Giants, granting you the following benefits. Misty Form, you can cast the Blur spell without using a spell slot or material components. Um, when you cast in this way, you don't require, it doesn't require you to hold concentration. Um, once you cast a spell in this way, you can't do so again until you've fl finished a long rest, but you may cast this spell normally if you have spell slots. Uh, silver, and the other one is Silvery Tongue. You gain proficiency in either deception or persuasion. Your proficiency bonus is doubled for any check you make using that skill. You get expertise in deception or persuasion, you can get a free cast of blur that you can also use again without concentration once. Which blur is blur is good. Blur's good. Blur's good. Perfectly fine. Love blur. Next, keenness of the stone giant. You learn the detect thoughts spell and one first level spell of your choice. The first level spell must be of the abjuration or divination school of magic. Highly recommend shield. <laughs> you can cast each of these spells without expending a spell slot. Once you cast either of these spells in this way, you can't cast that spell again in this way until you finish a long rest. You can also use spell slots to cast them of an appropriate level. Intelligence, wisdom, or charisma as your spell casting for this feature you choose when you gain the feat. You also get dark vision out to a range of 60 feet. If you already have dark vision from another source, it increases by 30 feet instead. It's a general buff. Just a general, like... It's going to buff just basically any character that takes it. Yeah. Uh, it's weird that it is required for a fourth level. Yeah, at this point I want to point out, these are all very thematic for the specific types of giants. They're, they're so far not really much special. I think the fire and the, and the frost giants are the most special ones, but the other yeah. ones are just free spell casting and a random ability. Yes. yes. Next one is called Outsized Might. You have absorbed primeval magic that allows you to, despite your relatively small stature, stature to embody the might of a titanic creature. Uh, you get the following benefits. Little but mighty. Your you gain proficiency in either athletics or acrobatics. Fine. Powerful build. You count as one size larger when determining your carrying capacity and the amount you can push, drag, or lift. Fine. And stalwart. You have advantage on saving throws against being moved or knocked prone. Basically, here's all the Goliath things. Plus, advantage on saving throws against being moved and knocked prone. Yeah. yeah. Fine. This would be a great first level free feat for a DM, depending on your character build. I agree. Next one, this is by far, I feel like, the most powerful one. Rune Carver Apprentice. Whenever you finish a long rest, you can mark one non-magical weapon, armor, piece of clothing, or other object you can touch with a rune of your choice. The temper you temporarily learn one first level spell based on the rune you choose as specified in the rune spells table. And you know the following spell, and you know the spell until you finish a long rest when the rune fades. The spells that you can choose from include false life, fog cloud, ray of sickness, chromatic orb, bane, burning hands, bless, armor of agathis, goodberry, long strider, command, guiding bolt, cure wounds, jump, shield, sanctuary, thunder wave, Heroism and Featherfall. 
While you are wearing or carrying the rune-marked object, you can cast the chosen spell associated with it. Without using a spell slot or material components, you can also cast the spell using any spell slots you have. Your spellcasting ability for the feature is intelligence, wisdom, or charisma when you choose when you gain this feat. Just a slew of really good first-level spells that you can get for free once per day and then also just have access to. If you are a sorcerer with limited spells known, mm -hmm. this is fucking amazing. If you are a warlock with limited spell slots, which, by the way, if you want to do better with your warlock, you should check out our YouTube video that we're going to release sometime. I was going to say in the near future, but sometime. Just sometime. On using spell points for warlocks instead of spell slots. All, pretty much all of these spells are bangers. False Life, Ray of Sickness, Bane, Bless, Burning Hands, Armor of Agathis. Not as useful at first level, but still good. Still good. Command, Guiding Bolt, Cure Wounds, Shield, Thunder Wave, Heroism, Featherfall. There's a couple of duds, but you, you get to choose one every single day. Yeah, you're not limited to one when you take this feat. Yeah, just one new one, and this this is going to be good for any class. Oh my gosh, so good! Any class. So 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 good. And if you know what you're going to do that day, even better. Yeah. I'll also take the next one because it is the feat that is the buff to the previous feat, the Rune Carver Adept. You have to have the Rune Carver Apprentice feat as well as be fourth level. Your skill with the art of Runecraft has increased. Whenever you finish a long rest, you can now mark a number of objects equal to your proficiency bonus with a rune from the Rune Carver Apprentice feat. The, an object can have only one rune at a time, and you must inscribe a different rune on each object. Now, as a DM, I'm totally fine if you are a fighter with a longsword being like, I'm going to put this rune and this rune and this rune and this rune on it. Yeah, sure, that's cool. I think that's cool to have a glowy sword with fucking runes running up that you use to cast spells. That's fucking cool. Right. Holy shit. These two things together are really good. Oh, yeah. Um... Suddenly I, I, it, have su it sucks that it's two feats. I think there are other feats that are as impactful as this can be that are a single feat. I'd be okay with it being a single feat that requires a prerequisite of fourth level. That could be fine. I, like you said, I think that Rune Carver's Apprentice um, could be one of those... Either, you know, if the DM gives you a free feat at level at, at your character creation, or if you're just like, hey... Or if you're just like, hey... Uh, my, this is, we've been talking about, you know, maybe assigning certain feats to certain backgrounds. This could be like if you have stones. Assigning, assigning feats to various races. Yeah, this, uh, but yeah, that rune carver, when you get to, when you get to your proficiency bonus at max, you have six free, uh, first level spells, which is more than any natural class. And the first, and at the, if you got this at level four, that's three. Yeah. That's, That's almost, almost as much as a <laughs> the wizard. The warlock would love this. The yeah. sorcerer would love this. Every class would love this. The barbarian, well, the, the barbarian the less because they can't cast spells while they're raging. But the fighter who uh, you, fighter. you put it, you oh can cast God. thunder. You know, you're suddenly surrounded. Cast thunder wave, or um, you get hit. Cast shield. Cast shield. Cast armor of Agathis when you run in. I, do you have to target yourself? I believe you have to do it. You cast the chosen spell associated with the rune once without using a spell slot, and you can also cast the spell using any spell slots you have. So I guess you don't technically... You don't have I mean, to target yourself, even. But, I mean, well... Obviously, shield, you would have to target yourself. And armor of a Bless and Bane, though. That? That'd be weird if you had to Bane yourself. I know, right? Bless and Bane? Fucking armor of Agathas? Well, armor of Agathas is self. Cure wounds. Cure wounds. Longstrider. Fucking false life. Fucking... 
this, this is a very, 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 very good feed. Yes. Um, it's, we have to get into this, though. When you're taking feats as currently written in the PHP, yes. yes, there's the opportunity cost of losing out on an ASI, which, depending on what kind of feat you're doing, mathematically, you might just be better taking the ASI buff. It might be more boring. Mathematically is more useful. Power gamers know this. Yeah. yeah. You always have to th think about opportunity cost, which especially requiring two feats to unlock the full potential. Yeah. yeah. That is a plus four to your ability scores. That is a very big impact. I think it should be one feat. I mean, if you rolled, if you were rolling up stats and somehow you got 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, and 18, you know what? Do whatever you want. Really, like, fuck off. You're the worst person. <laughs> or if you got three, 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 and three, your character's dead already. Perfect. Two more. Soul of the Storm Giant, eighth level prerequisite. Like the other storm giant ones, uh, your ability, one ability is Maelstrom Aura. As a bonus action, you can surround yourself with magical wind and lightning that extends 10 feet from you in every direction. It lasts for one minute until you're incapacitated. While the aura is active, attack rolls against you have disadvantage, and whenever a creature starts its turn within the sphere, you can force that creature's speed to be halved until the start of its next turn. Once you've used this bonus action, you can't do so until a long rest. The other ability is Storm Oracle. You can cast the Divination spell as a ritual without components. Um, Wisdom, intelligence, charisma, blah, 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 blah. Using this feature. Uh, once you do it again, you can do that once per day. Cool. The Maelstrom, cool. The aura is nice. It, the paladin that has an aura naturally, being able to stack multiple auras, it's pretty sweet. Your frontliner just being able to get some disadvantage when yeah. they begin the battle. Pal paladin casting one of the aura spells, plus their innate aura, plus something like this. Mm. Triple threat. Yep. Good, good stuff. And finally, Vigor of the Hill Giant, prerequisite of fourth level. You are a bulwark. When you are subjected to an effect that would move you at least five feet or knock you prone, you can use your reaction to steady yourself. You are then neither moved or knocked prone. As well as hearty health. When you are subjected to a spell that restores your hit points, you regain additional hit points equal to your charisma modifier. You can regain these additional hit points a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. I don't know why that isn't just innate. Yeah. yeah. Should just be innate. I, I, it does need to be limited to a proficiency bonus a number of times a day. I think the Vigor of the Hill Giants is kind of... It's the most, the, the, it's the most boring. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's not great. It's not great, but it's not bad. I think it's fine. Now... That is the entirety of the UA. I will say, as we, as we have noticed with the progression to Xanathar's, to then Tasha's, to other releases, the power creep is real. Mm -hmm. These are pretty powerful. I think the Druid is objectively weak in its yeah. current in incarnation. I think the Barbarian is one of the top tier subclasses as is. I think the wizard is one of the top tier subclasses as is. I think most of the feats are good. I don't see why they really need to exist. They're fun. They're thematic. Giant. Fine. Whatever. Yeah, we'll probably, I mean, I mean, like we said, this is playtest and we'll we don't know what release this is coming in, but we can then assume that we're going to have a giant centric Either adventure or a giant-centric campaign setting, maybe in the next year. Maybe the next, um, the next 
expansion for D&D, the next Xanathars, the next Tasha's having giant options in the subclasses and feats. I will say, with this last couple of Unearthed Arcana, a lot of feats. A lot of There are a lot of feats, and there are not a lot of ways to get feats. Which I'm in the books. Which I mean, we're hoping, as I think most of the vocal community on TikTok, which we are we are in tune in in tune with, um, feats just need to be more readily available or more presentable to the players because there's a lot of cool things and there's a lot of cool customization you can do. Not everybody wants to deal with multi-classing. Um, but yeah, right now rules is written. You can either you can take them instead of your ASI. And none of these are half ASIs either. None of them. None of them. None of them. Which, even with the even with the Heroes of Kryn UA, most of those were half ASIs. Now, something like the Rune Carver ones probably shouldn't be, but something like the 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 Vigor of the Hill Giant that could be a plus one con. Yeah. I think that's totally reasonable. I think the Vigor of the Hill Giant could definitely use a buff before it would be put into an official publication. I think it's fine as is if you got a plus one con. Anyway, I think these are very powerful. They're cool. Try them out if you want. There will be a survey in the future. Uh, at this point, I want to shout out our Discord server, yeah. where like 129 people currently are and has been a bit more active in the last like day or two, which is always fun. I think you that was partially due to us joining the Degenerates. Yeah. They've had a lot, a lot of their people have come and joined us, too. They're all awesome. We love the Degenerates. And in the podcast questions channel, you can ask us a question to be answered on the podcast. We have three today. First one from Duncan Ironbrother. How much prep did you do for your first DM session? Way too fucking much. <laughs> Way too much. Um, my first time DMing was a one-shot that turned into a two-shot, and I... And I over-prepped to the point that I wasn't very flexible at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and it felt very railroady. And even though I felt very prepared, I did not have experience with when you guys did random shit that I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> it felt very linear. And yeah, I would recommend figuring out where you want them to start, what you want your inciting incident to be, and where you would like them to end up. And then how you get from one to the other to the other, you figure out on your own during the game. And uh, maybe just create a list of random NPC names. Sure, that's all. Oh, my God. <laughs> names are so fucking hard. Your names are hard. Titles. Really fucking hard. I'm going to answer one question you asked and two questions you didn't ask. Uh, the first question, how much prep did I do? Same answer. Way too much. Um, my first time DMing was uh, the beginning of a new campaign. I had two players, and man, I thought through every every little step of how he, this player is going to get from this location to this location and meet up with this player, and how they're going to be introduced to this NPC that's going to tell them to go on this quest. And and uh, let me tell you, it was not worth it. Not not a good time. Um, now I assume you're asking this question. Um, because you want to know how much prep you should do before your first DM session, or maybe you're just curious, but as a first-time DM, you don't, you don't need to do as much prep as you think. Just kind of know the basics of, if they ask, can I, can I move this turn? Sure. Sure. Can I attack this turn? Know that. Know that rule. Yep. Know some basic rules and have an idea of what a field looks like in your head. Yep. 
the third thing I'm going to say is the amount of time I spend spent prepping is not the same amount of time I spent thinking about my first session of D&D going into it. Just the amount of time I think of any D&D session about what, while I'm watching other DMs DM or while I'm, you know, talking about, to other people about the D, the game of D&D or what I'm doing in my car when I'm just like, wow, this highway is boring. Might as well think about D&D. I think that stuff is far more valuable than actually necessarily sitting down and prepping for a first for a session. Absolutely. And if you're really worried about it, buy a pre-written adventure. There you go. It, the prep that you need done is going to be done already. And you can just read it and figure it out on your own. I think that'd be a great thing to do. That'd be great. Good question. Uh, next, Osric McGahan. McGahan. Osric McGahan. Hi, Osric. Osric. How do you feel about adding philosophies or adding ideals as main topic of a campaign? Now, I want to point out your grammar here. Ideals as a main topic of a campaign, not as main topic. You're allowed to uh, hate him. Connor. You're allowed to hate Connor. Osborne. That is your. That, that is your. Hello, hello, Jester. That is your first offense. When you hit three offenses, uh, you are removed from the community. That is not true. You're fired. Now we, we'll stop. <laughs> we'll stop paying you. Now, when it comes to adding philosophies or ideals to a campaign, that's every campaign. Every group is going to have a philosophy. Is going to have an ideal. Now. That being said, you should never try and foist your own philosophies and ideals onto your party. Even if you think they agree with it, they might not. And even if they do agree with it, their characters might not. And you don't have to force any sort of morality or mm -hmm. worldview on your characters. That should be their own thing to discover. Provide philosophies and ideals for factions, for individual NPCs, give them logic and reasoning for their beliefs, and I would highly recommend finding someone you don't agree with, finding an opinion, a philosophy, a worldview that you hate, and make it an NPC in your campaign. You can make it a villain. You can make it a gray area, is this a good guy or a bad guy? You can present them as a good guy and have a twist be that they're a bad guy. You might learn something about yourself and it's going to make your NPCs and your games more interesting. That's how I feel. I think you, you verbalized that quite well. We can move on. That's all. Not that, I, not that I don't want to give you an answer, I just don't think I'll give you a better answer. Point for me. And finally, our good, our good friend from the role-playing degenerates, Cisco Sisquatch, asks, "What are your favorite monsters that you like to use? To uh, what are your favorite monsters that you like to see or use in a game? What type of personality for those monsters?" You can go first. So for me, um, I like to take when I'm running. I like to take the monsters that you don't expect to be the the role that they're in necessarily. Uh, in one of my campaigns that I, I run, uh, one of the main quest givers slash loot givers um, is an ooze. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> I, I that glom. I enjoy taking those those monsters that are typically seen as um, as just fodder for 
the, the players to kill and turning them on their head a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a little bit from my experience playing FromSoft games. Yeah. <laughs> they do that pretty, pretty at least yeah. a couple times a game. Um, as a player, I don't know. I'm, as a player, I'm pretty flexible. I, I like uh, chopping off the head of a bandit. I also like uh, stabbing a dragon. You know, you can't get, a, can't get enough. Now, I, I struggle with running monsters as a DM that are far from being humanoid or like a little humanoid but not quite. I prefer, at least in my homebrew campaign, I have preferred the conflict between societies more than the conflict between the party and monsters. Now we've, we've fought many a monster, don't get me wrong. But I've enjoyed the conflict of factions fighting each other. Uh, so I like humanoid monsters. Uh, NPCs at the back of various monster manuals. That's one thing I really like about... Uh, I've, I've read through Call of the Netherdeep, and I hope to be running that. There's a lot of NPC stat blocks, sort of generic, for a couple of factions that happen later in the game. I love a good NPC stat block. Um, the other one... My favorite monster that I've run is the Sorrow Sworn. Mm, you do like a Sorrow. Those things are fucking so cool. I, the the idea of a corrupted individual that just wants to hug, but wants to hug you so hard with their stabby bits that they end up stabbing you, <laughs> and that's fucking cool. And I love that. That's, that's where I'll leave it with that. That is all of the questions that we have in the Discord server. You can find a link to join our Discord. Everyone can join. They're going to be in the link tree in the bio of our TikTok, of our Instagram, of our YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're listening on a podcast service around the globe, tough luck. Can't put uh, any sort of links in those things. Just head to our TikTok, our Instagram, or our YouTube. The Dungeon Bros. And go from there. Yes. Yes. Now, we, o- we always record. This podcast live on the TikTok. Live from TikTok. It's Saturday night. Well, it's Thursday afternoon. Don't, don't rain on my parade. <laughs> it's Thursday afternoon right now. Uh, but do we have anyone in the chat? Uh, we have very few people in the chat, but we have a number of chats in the chat. Oh, lovely. All right. Uh, first, a name I recognize, and I'm sure you'll remember, Urethra Puncher. Ah, <laughs> Urethra Puncher. Fucking love that guy. Urethra Puncher hitting us back. When a bard lays a male dragon, how would you roll damage, piercing, or bludgeoning? Force. Moving on. Uh, ah. Next up, from Typical Gemini. Oh, I love that guy. This is a little prelude. I think that he doesn't necessarily know he's preluding. But uh, do you guys play Magic the Gathering? And if so, what do you play? Ooh, I have previously played Magic the Gathering. Um, I played Magic the Gathering Arena earlier this year, a little bit, for about a month and a half. Um, It was a lot. Yeah, (laughs) it was a lot. Uh, when I was in college, my freshman year of college, 2013 to 2014, I played Magic the Gathering with all of the guys that lived on my floor because our RA and a couple of the guys that lived there were really, really, really into Magic the Gathering. And us coming onto campus coincided with the release of Theros, the original run of Theros in 2013, 2014. So we did a big, we did uh, like, a, I think it was the core set 2013 
we all chipped in and got a big draft booster box, and then we had a big draft game in our dorm. That was fun. Then we went to the Theros pre-release at a local game shop. Uh, I got a lot of Theros stuff there. That was really fun. Got a bunch of pre-release stuff. Um, I ended up building a blue-white deck where my goal was to get as many Phalanx leaders out and get as many of their plus one, plus one buffs as possible onto them, uh, which is also how I played in Magic the Gathering Arena. There you go. Um, yeah, I liked. Th I mostly like Theros because of the like Greek and Roman-inspired look and mythology, and uh, we played quite a bit. Once we got to the new year of 2014, people stopped playing as much. Um, it's when I stopped playing as well. I still have all of my cards. I still like my deck that I built. I... <sighs> the prelude there being we would we were looking to have a typical Gemini on to interview to talk about Magic the Gathering. We are. All right. Next, Next up. You don't, uh, have, oh, you don't have experience with MTG? I have played um, in like high school. There was the uh, uh, Xbox live or the Xbox downloadable version. Uh, I played through the tutorial. Okay. Yeah. Um, never really got into it more than that. That's fair. That's and it wasn't, it was just for lack of... You don't want to be playing a card game on a TV. No. And and it was just at that time, I didn't know a lot of people who played. I know a lot of people who since then have begun to play mm -hmm. or who have actually like been like, oh, yeah, I've, I've played since high school. I'm like, I didn't fucking know that. Anyway. Next up is Lost Rixia. Do you have any tips for how to play a chaotic neutral or evil character? Mm. The chaotic neutral, colloquially known as the chaotic stupid, a lot of people like to use chaotic neutral to hide behind the fact that they just want to do whatever the fuck they want, regardless of what makes sense. If you are playing chaotic neutral, lawful chaotic isn't you follow the rules and you never follow the rules. Lawful is you have a code that you live by and you follow that code. Chaotic is you don't ascribe to anyone's code other than your own, kind of. Chaotic opens up the door for you to do many different things. Um, neutral means that you are neither good nor evil, so you do the things that benefit you the most. So doing stupid fucking things <laughs> that have little chance of benefiting you in any reasonable way, don't do those things. As for evil characters, establish, I think we talked about this previously on the podcast. Talk with your party about it before you start playing. Talk with your DM about it. Figure out what forms of evil the party is okay with. Because there are things like murder and stealing that in a D&D campaign are fairly regular. Yeah, pretty typical. And then there's like bad things that happen in the real world that you probably don't want to bring into your campaign. I don't want to name them. <laughs> you don't. You don't want to sexually assault people in a game. Would probably be. That'd probably be a good line not to cross. Yeah. Um, don't eat people. Don't. Yeah. Cannibalism probably not great. Um, torture. I mean, I have a character that likes to torture, but that you know, it's something you gotta talk about. Mm -hmm. Make sure your party is okay with it. I would say for um, chaotic. There, the way I like to look at chaotic versus lawful, 
um, actually goes back into a little bit more uh, like typical fantasy where chaos is that of the of nature is that of the Feywild um, as opposed to man which likes to do you know very structured things likes to make roads that are straight and, and paved whereas the chaos so chaos um, the way I often see it is just is not necessarily being uh, a destructive force, but doing what is more natural, being less, you know, beholden uh, to beholden. rules. Exactly. The difference between the person that folds their socks and underwear drawer versus just throws them in. Yes. And that's maybe that that's that's actually a lovely little flavorful bit you could add in um, and then just kind of go from there. Like, you know, do, do, is their stuff messy? Is it more entropic? Entropy. Entropy. That's a good one. That was good. Um, also asks, where'd you get that poster? It's really nice. It's Etsy. Yep. A lot of cool things there. Support your local creators or small creators. I guess it's hard to be local with Etsy, but that's fine. Yeah. All right. Uh, Vim Kayla asks, what's your favorite multi-class combo? Hmm. I'm going to go with actually one of the, I don't multi-class all that often, of course I don't get characters that get the chance to all that often, but uh, I really enjoyed when I played the, uh, I believe it was an Assassin Rogue Shadow Monk combo. That was fun. That was in my first game. That was in your first game. That one was fun. That one was fun. You get to just jump around. Uh, the Shadow Monk gives you a, a great extra number of ways to get advantage. Um, and so, you know, you get that, uh, get that tasty, tasty sneak attack. One level of Hexblade Warlock with Valor Bard, Swords Bard, or any Paladin. I prefer the Hexblade Warlock with Martial Charisma Casters more than any other kind of Warlock with any kind of Sorcerer, incidentally. Hmm. I think the Coffee Lock is good, powerful, a little bit overrated. I think it's a, I think overrated is one of the big words. I think it is shocking how good a swords bard is with one level of hexblade warlock. Highly recommend. All right. Um. Seriously, Cody. Uh, says so. I played D and D for the first time a couple weeks ago with a bunch of random people I just met, and it was the best time I've had in a long time. We are happy to hear that. Wonderful. Uh, May Rose says I just became. A top one viewer. Hell yeah. What's up? We'll dab you up sometime. Dab. As, as they do as a, as a, who is it? Troy and Abed in oh, Community. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, Caesarini with Dawini. Oh, God. <laughs> what are these names? Says, is that a dog bed dice tray? No, it's a cat bed dice tray. As we've discussed, I think, on every episode of the podcast, it feels like the cat wouldn't lay in the cat bed when I got her the cat bed. She would continue to lay in the dice tray. The dice tray slowly became her cat bed, so we put the dice tray in the cat bed so the cat will lay in the dice tray in the cat bed. And look cute like right now. Yes. She's right. calmed down finally. Typical Gemini hop back in and ask, what is the highest level of players you guys have ever DM'd for? What level were you guys for the one shot? 16? I think we were level 16. That's think, the highest. Uh, and I think I've DM'd for level 10s. Sidebar, for your first ever time DMing, don't DM high level games. 
Things, things can get really complicated and really fast. out of control so quickly. Can't DM like third level characters. Perfectly adequate. That's more than fine. Don't, I, I, play, I, I watched quite a bit of Critical Role, high level games. I thought I got it and to an extent I did, but to another extent I did not. DM's all about practicing. All about all about practice. It's one of those, it's, a, it's a muscle that you have to work out. Oh. It's the only muscle I know you'll work out. Oh, no, is it? Yes. yes. Is it? Yes. Is it? Yes. Is it? Yes. I thought you would have made a masturbation joke. Nope. Just DMing. Hmm. All right. Uh, then he asks again, why are there items that boost your strength to 25 to 29, but not items that do that for other stats? Well, when it comes to charisma and intelligence and wisdom as spellcasting things, the benefit that you get from having a plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four on top of what is normal maximum for spell save DC makes a lot of boss fights trivial. If you have a spell save DC of fucking 24, you can banish pretty much anything. And then combat's done. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's why Wizards of the Coast has been very, very judicious about what items give a spell save DC bonus. Um, whereas when it comes to strength, you're really only making attacks with it. Yeah. With constitution, you're really only getting health and a benefit to your constitution saving throw. With dexterity, you get AC, initiative, uh, dexterity skills like sleight of hand, stealth, you get ranged attacks, you get finesse weapon attacks. You get Dexterity is like the god skill in many ways. of our bonuses to your armor class. Yes. Um, and I will say, not necessarily what typical Gemini asks, but I think that if you come from 3rd edition or Pathfinder, 3.5 edition or Pathfinder, you do, those are editions of, oh shoot, I failed, hold on, I have more, more buffs, or, oh shoot, uh, that hit? Wait, hold on. I have uh, additional things to add in my AC. And I think also that Wizards is probably trying to pull back from... Because 5th edition is all about more of that, of just the common man moving up to being a, a great hero. And with their character creation process, they want to do as much of that math and upfront work as possible, and then have you really only worrying about that stuff when you level up. And then when you're playing the game, you just have a single plus or minus that you look at, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Or you have a set number, and that's what you look at. You know, um, I would not recommend giving spellcasters spellcasting abilities of like 26 or higher. Really, mm-hmm. just saying. I mean, the, I mean, I could see a consume a high-level consumable being like for one round after you consume this, you have a. Depending, yeah. you know, like you were saying, even for a minute in combat, that's a huge amount of time. But if you want, if you want one good, if you want one good thing where you are almost ensured to to succeed, and not just have something that says you you are assured success with this next thing, eh, sure, no twenty nine uh, thirty intelligence for a second for your wizard, and suddenly like oh, they're basically going to hit with this plus seventeen. There you go. I don't even know what the number is. Now Sam. Well, there's two more things. There's two more things. Two more things. They're not questions, but I, I feel that we should address them. Very good. Uh, Eat with Mel says, came for the cat, stayed for the chat. Oh, always a good time. And then uh, Clicky, 
Click key D and D says best multi-class in my opinion is Paladin Warlock. Very Told good. you. <laughs> <laughs> now Connor, we're at an hour forty-five. Ooh. Plus, we're going to be adding it. I mean, we've already had our interview with role-playing degenerates. Yes, we're not doing the whole thing for this. I was thinking like 15 to 20. It might have to be 10 now. Or this will be the first podcast that ever goes over two hours. Yeah. Wasn't expecting it for this one. But yet here we are. We had a lot of questions. A lot of good questions. Yeah. Uh, if you want, you can follow us on the TikTok, where over 18,000 of you already do. You can subscribe to our YouTube, where we post the podcast, as well as very soon, hopefully. Good, <laughs> other videos. Other good YouTube videos. You can also listen to the podcast on your podcast service of choice. Apple, Spotify, Google, televisions. Drop us a review and a like uh, or, or a five-star review. Yeah. Um, that will help us boost in the ratings. The more we are boosted in the ratings, the more dumb shit we can put in your ears. 100%, 100%. As well, you can join our Discord server, which is free and open to all to enter. Uh, following the link tree in any of our socials, which include TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. We have a Twitter. We don't really do much on Twitter. We've, removed it. We've also removed it from the link tree. Yeah, it's also gone from the link tree. Don't look for us on Twitter. The last thing in the link tree is the drive through RPG, where every month we release a free pay-what-you-want homebrew pack. Uh, this one is going to be Conduction, which is the drug. The drug. The drugs. Drugs. The drugs. Doing the drugs. Doing the drugs. Uh, that Sam did. Uh, we also have our uh, homebrew blood magic supplement. Hum- homebrew, the blood magic and hemocraft supplement. It's four ninety nine on drive through RPG. If you join the Discord server, there is a discount link. Have at it. <laughs> we have had a review by a very close personal friend, being role playing generous DM Stephen, saying that he really enjoyed it and will include it in his campaign, which is always fun. We would love to hear that. If you have any comments, please let us know. On the Discord, on the Instagram, mm-hmm. on the TikTok, mm-hmm. not the Twitter. I, now I have I have a bit of a note for ourselves. Note, note for selves. Note for selves. Um, sit down and start talking about an hour and a half before we record, so that by the time the cat chills the fuck out, she's laying cutely, and then we can start recording. Mm. We can try our best, but we are already crunched for time most of the time. That's true. I got here like 15 minutes before we recorded. And I got off of work five minutes before we started. It do be like that sometimes. Now, we see we will have the interview, the full interview up with Role Playing Degenerates in one week from when this posts. In two weeks, episode 17, undecided what we will talk about. We always find something. Something happens. We do. Something always happens. We always find something. But in the meantime,